Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our Magician's Watch Through, discussing Season 2, Episode 7, Plan B. Chris, can you give us a recap of what happened? Quentin researches how to turn Nif and Alice back into a human, while Alice just wants to be let out and free. Julia and Katie meet with two Korean mages, one who requires a million dollars to exercise her pregnancy. After they're attacked by an invisible goblin, they find out that the other exorcist sent them to kill her baby, and thus Julia, and won't stop until it's dead or aborted. When they go to break bills for Sanctuary, they run into Quentin and fill him in on their plan, and Katie reunites with Penny and recruits him for the heist as well. In Fillory, Elliot and Margot realize that the kingdom is bankrupt, and once they speak with Quentin, the whole crew teams up to rob a magically protected bank to raise funds for both problems. However, not everything in the heist goes according to plan, and Penny gets trapped inside the bank vault. It never does, or it wouldn't be a very interesting heist. True. In the attempt to rescue him and the gold, Quentin agrees to allow Nif and Alice to possess his body for 30 minutes every day in exchange for her help, Julia uses time magic to support them, and Elliot's golem is killed, causing the real Elliot to convulse with seizures. After the heist, Julia wakes up and Katie tells her that the exorcism slash abortion was successful, but there were complications. Yeah, so fun kind of theme episode, heist. Mm -hmm. Those are always fun, but then when you put magic into the mix, they just get heightened even more of what people can do. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) So why don't we go into some of our magic moments from the episode? What were yours? Yeah, I like how basically the entire cast loves the idea of robbing a bank. Yeah. (laughs) Particularly Margot Mm -hmm. and Penny both being super excited. Absolutely. Margot's already done it, and Penny says, I've always wanted to rob a bank. It's pretty great. Margot also calls three of the Marks that work at the bank the librarian, neckbeard, and white privilege. Mm -hmm. Just excellent. And then I also just really enjoyed the new ways that we see them use magic, where we see the levitation belt. Penny has this contraption to help him adjust it manually, how strong Mm -hmm. it will go and and where it will take him. We see the wrecking ball. The disco ball ball dance weapon, which Mm -hmm. uh, my brother worked on a video game that has that weapon in it. It's excellent. (laughs) They cheated. Clearly. They stole it. Yeah. (laughs) And I also just thought that the use of the invisible attackers was pretty well done. You know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing is always a good way of saving money on CG. So, you know, sometimes it can kind of just be distracting that way, but I thought that it was still having some cool scenes with how that was choreographed with people fighting them and and getting hurt by them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so those were my magic moments. What about you? At the beginning when Elliot and Margot were still in Fillory, (laughs) Elliot's just like, is there really no way to take it all back? (laughs) (laughs) And Tick Pickwick just says, One does not take back a declaration of war, which is, yeah. (laughs) Pretty accurate, yeah. You can't take those things back. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a great reason why they should not be declared rashly. (laughs) (laughs) Although Margot still is like, well, I don't want to take it back anyway. (laughs) Oh, Margot. 
Uh, a, a great Margo line, though, is when they're discussing the plan to rob a bank and whatnot, Margo tells Julia that we still hate you, but it's the 21st century. It shouldn't be this hard to get an evil demigod abortion, which is... Also perfect line. Yes. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that, the situation. That could be an episode title. That's yeah. how good that line is. <laughs> yes. Also, it, it's so sad that Penny is so happy when he levitates in mm-hmm. and is like figuring out how the thing works and so quickly it all just <laughs> crumbles. <laughs> Yet, in the midst of him being locked in this vault and running out of air, he thinks of incepting Fillory Elliot's dream to communicate things to him. So he, you know, it's it's just great how convoluted it's gotten. Yet uh, Penny knows exactly what he needs to do to try to communicate and help. Mm-hmm. And yeah, him and get out. that's built on things that have been established in the show already, which mm-hmm. is I think really good magic building. Where you know we don't learn a lot about this magic system, but we've learned certain rules of what Penny can do what a golem is and what Elliot's circumstances are. So when they put those together, it makes logical sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also like just the tiny little detail when they were even talking about the levitation belt that Penny was like, well, I don't know how to levitate and I can't do magic, but that's not something that I guess he learned in his discipline mm-hmm. because his discipline, well, first was psychic and then now is a traveler. And so that's not information that he would have learned in any class. So it's nice when you see little things here and there of them actually having differences depending on their discipline. Absolutely. Yeah. Another reason also why Penny and Julia become so interesting because they're the only non-physical of the kids and so they have Mm -hmm. even more of those kinds of differences totally totally and then another part that i just enjoy is when the the time is being rewound Mm -hmm. and on on one of them katie's just like why should i have to go out there first (laughs) and ellie's like well you're the battle magician (laughs) he doesn't want to go out first Mm -hmm. Isn't this what you do? <laughs> just how his stance was and just not not whining, but just like being a little coward, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. I appreciate. <laughs> but why don't we move into our next section, which is setting and society. Either parallels to our world are you seeing or things about the setting of the magician show. Yeah, one thing is we see for the first time some of the ways that magic is professionally used to hurt people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see these battle magicians, these guards who are warped in to these kinds of locations when an alarm goes off. And so a single guard or group of guards can be able to respond to a number of different locations, most likely. But then we see that guard pick up this lightning wand, this kind of magical weapon that almost becomes like a lightning whip that can be used in that way. And so, yeah, it helps to illuminate how there is a professionalization of violence in the magical world as well. Mm-hmm. That not everything is just about gaining more control over magic or 
having disco balls. Exactly. But that there are a lot of resources that are also devoted to maintaining power and control through violence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I thought that that was something that was interesting to watch uh, and, and added a new element to that world building. We also, of course, have to discuss the comment about eugenic books. Magical eugenic books. Yeah. Where Penny is looking for a book written by a Polish Jew, and the book was destroyed by eugenics books that have since been taken to the restricted section with all the other anti-Semitic books. And, uh... Is I remember the first time we watched the show, you just bust up laughing because it's so unexpected. It's, ex- it's just this like really smart, unexpected, didn't need to be in there at all <laughs> joke. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I always enjoy when shows will connect their magical systems or their fantastic elements to real life things, especially real life things that aren't necessarily current. But this one I thought was particularly interesting because of the ways that the most extreme anti-Semitism, being Nazi Germany, also utilized things like book burnings uh, Mm -hmm. as a way of creating cultural power and control over what kind of information should exist and is valid within their society. And so for them to make magical books that the magic that repels them makes them destroy other knowledge because of their racist eugenic principles, I find interesting. Yeah, and thinking about it in terms of it's not just like only people who wouldn't use their magic for evil will have magical gifts. So people who have a really horrific points of view could also put those into their books obviously normally but if a magician is doing it it can have this other element too where the book itself can carry out acts of hate absolutely yeah you know we we can look back at eugenics now in a way that is very aware of how awful it was but we have to be aware that eugenics was state-sponsored that this was something Mm. that around the world took eugenics into consideration, you know. Here in the U.S., miscegenation laws that made it a crime to marry people of other races existed for decades after Nazi Germany was toppled, you know. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not a history of only the most evil people in the world, but in fact was something that was widespread and very common in many societies, a lot of powerful people subscribe to these ideas. Exactly, yeah. And I'm sure some still do. Certainly, yeah. I mean, we still use eugenic practices in prisons and mental health institutions in the United States, you know, with women being forcibly sterilized and not being told about it often. You know, these are things that are ongoing, certainly. But it does also, I think, raise an interesting question of this this restricted section for anti-Semitic books that could destroy other books. And it brings up, I think, an, just an interesting question about what do we do with those kinds of books, with that kind of information? The historian in me thinks that we should keep all knowledge and that destruction of any kinds of books, knowledge, even if it is those created by people who are using them for evil ends, the destruction of it is still something that 
robs us of understanding of the past, and that is a negative thing. But some of those things also continue to create harm in society today, as these books clearly are, were doing. And so, you know, what do we do with those kinds of materials that do have the capacity or are actively providing harm in society? You know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tricky question. One of the best ideas would be to only provide that kind of information with contextual analysis that highlights the problematic and harmful nature of them, but that's not always possible. And so, yeah, it just kind of brings up these, I think, thorny issues, which just this kind of flippant joke about eugenics books, yeah, really made me start thinking about. Yeah, it's like... It kind of goes into the problem of break bills in, in a way, because if you're going to say, well, these texts can only be accessed by mm -hmm. people in scholarship, well, then they're only being able to be accessed by certain people and academic institutions, museums, you know, whatever it is gets to gatekeep for that information, which I can understand the problems of at the same time. There's also the problems of just anyone can access, obviously, hateful rhetoric, but also, like, how to make bombs. And, you know, totally. with the internet, things become much more complicated. And a lot of people who are still on the hate trains <laughs> of things, like, at this point, would rather just be in their toxic little online groups rather than actually do any academic study and, mm -hmm. and read these texts but yeah it, it gets problematic uh either way you go yeah absolutely what did you have for setting in society so one is when Nif and Alice was trying to pester Quentin and make it difficult for him to not want to just let her go mm -hmm. so that she's not just screaming at him in his mind all the time. But one of the things she said when he was telling her to stop and everybody in the library turns and looks at him, she said, one of them is eventually going to call the brain police on you and you've got priors, which I just thought was a very interesting phrasing for it because police, and we think of if somebody has a past offense that can very easily be factored into all things law enforcement, mm -hmm. um, whether they believe people, whether they want to sentence them to higher degree or whatever. And so thinking about that in terms of mental health is, yeah, I think, unfortunately, something that I'm sure is relevant that if people have a prior history of different mental health struggles, even if they're on different medications that have pretty much stopped that or whatever it is, they still might be suspect mm -hmm. or people still might assume things about them. And then when you get into things like being institutionalized where you may not have a say, yeah, it, it gets very tricky and can put people in more vulnerable positions. Or even something like 
life insurance. Like, mm-hmm. if you have a history of diagnosed depression, they may not approve you or they might approve you and you have to pay more. So it can definitely get very messy in a world where we don't take care of people well who have different health needs as well as in a capitalist world. Yeah. Yeah. And and the policing of those with mental health issues has a long history. Mm-hmm. Um, that history has, I think, only been exacerbated as, in the United States at least, we have started to defund mental health services. And so police officers have often become one of the first lines of contact for those who are experiencing mental health episodes or mm-hmm. uh, are in crisis. So this idea of the brain police, I mm-hmm. think, is a real one and is one that, that I could totally imagine someone having fears of. We already saw how Quentin had a deep fear of being institutionalized, mm-hmm. you know, and institutionalization has to come with policing. Like there has to be some sort of violence or force behind that in order for it to occur. And so, yeah, like even though we don't think of that always as being a part of society, it it really is. Yeah, it's another way in which Quentin's characterization does make him a unique protagonist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, another thing that I was thinking about is the... Korean butchers mm. slash mudong they visit and I was like okay let's look up this word and see what that is and I don't know much more than what I read on Wikipedia <laughs> so this is the source but yeah something called muism or musok is a polytheistic religion from Korea that holds both deities and ancestral spirits are capable of interacting with humans and causing them problems. And there are ritual specialists within the religion, which the majority of them are women. Hmm. So, yeah, I didn't go super down the rabbit hole, but it was just an interesting um, aspect of, you know, we've seen a little bit of interaction with other communities, like, for example, the Jin. Mm-hmm. But here's another place that we're seeing that, and I'm not well-versed in this, you know, people who are actually a part of this religion would be offended at this portrayal, or uh, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I also found it an interesting element to, to include. Um, and the characterization of the Mudong, I think, was also fascinating, as they were charging a million dollars for this exorcism, mm-hmm. but also continuing to work in look like a butcher shop. Totally, yeah. And so, yeah, it just raised questions of if that is how much it costs, you know, where do those funds go? How do they utilize them? Why are they still doing this kind of work if they have these magical abilities, you know, um, is this just that it's so rare to get that kind of work, you know, just... I or think that it, people can pay for it. Yeah, they're providing for a larger number of people, uh, perhaps a larger family, you know, like, it, it just, uh, yeah, it, it made the characters more intriguing immediately to see them in that setting. Mm-hmm. But it does also, yeah, possibly raise some stereotypical representation questions that I'm certainly not equipped to answer. 
Agreed. Agreed. But yeah, it was also interesting that Professor Lipson said that she has wanted to get Monong um, at Breakbills for a really long time, but they just cost too much mm-hmm. to be able to hire any. Yeah, and you know, are there cultural differences in the value of magic that mm-hmm. are at play there? You know, would they see Breakbills as too inclusive, not exclusive enough? I I don't know, but or is it like you know? Brain surgeons mm-hmm. charge a lot more than a dentist. You know? yeah. And it also made me think about how we saw the two Mudong talking to one another in Korean and neither Katie nor Julia could understand it. Yeah, totally. I was thinking about that too. It's like, you know, they... They study so many languages mm-hmm. as part of their magical study. Korean's not one of them. Apparently. Why is that? Is that because the Mudong's magic is has been so well kept that it's not available to breakbills or hedge magicians? And so that then they didn't have the need or the, the desire to learn Korean because they're not dealing with Korean spells because they don't have access to them. Like, yeah, I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about is just that magicians own the biggest banks in the world, it seems like. And it just shows yet again the kind of monopoly of power that magicians are wielding over the world. Not only do they have these gifts so that they can, as the white lady said, bend the ether to their will... But now they also want to have a monopoly on money that muggles rely on. Bending society to their will Mm -hmm. and social systems, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, banks are so terrible and corrupt. Just look into what happened in 2007, 2008, Mm -hmm. and just really, really diabolical things and how banks choose to lend or not lend to people often has to do with race and you know socioeconomic inequalities and all of these things and so it's just thinking about the idea of magicians being involved in all of that too is just it's like you have so much why do you need more why do you want to make things even more unequal than they already are with people who have magic and people who don't have magic or the classically trained versus the people who don't have magic and hedges you know yeah both groups being forced under their control to some degree in society mm-hmm. and the fact that they only ask questions post-mortem which it seems like a type of thing that you would hear in a heist movie <laughs> but here they actually mean it yeah. because they'll actually bring them back to life for a few minutes <laughs> which is just kind of delightful totally. <laughs> the other thing that i'm really wondering about and i'm not really sure why they had it in there is just when penny w- was with katie talking mm-hmm. to the Mudong. She was saying something to them in Korean. He was just like, use your words. And she like hit him with yeah. the spoon. And I'm like, what? not that people aren't racist, not that these things don't come out. Obviously, 
Yes, but for a character who's been the only character to really call out racism, I just, I felt like it was misplaced. Totally. Not that they would want Katie to necessarily say that, and I suppose of anyone's personality that we've come across in this show yet, it would, you know, probably be... uh, Penny or Margo would be most <laughs> exasperated and rude to strangers, and both of them happen to be the people of color. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I mean, there's uh, Katie as well, but yeah, I don't know. It just felt questionable. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if part of it would come from him being so annoyed at being perceived as a quote-unquote foreigner. So then when others don't separate themselves from what you now look down on in mm-hmm. an internalized racist sort of way, then you judge them for it. You know, that that happens. So I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe he's projecting his xenophobia at Fillory onto someone else now for that he sees as different. I mean, does he have xenophobia from Fillory? Or, I think he just hates the problems. Yeah, I think that he he hates the way that that society operates because it is so often magical whimsy, but with a heavy dose of danger, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. Like, I get it. But I think that he, you know, he's the only one to say, like, I hate this place, Mm -hmm. you know, and he it's not like he's I guess he's making friends with Benedict. uh, But yeah, it just, uh, you know, he seems very easily exasperated with people. Um, yeah, Yeah, definitely. But also, you know, there is there is a point that where a lot of non-Asian Americans lump Asians all together into totally. one group. No, there's a lot of prejudices that are from between one Asian community and another. Absolutely. And, you know, all of that. So Yeah. But why don't we move from that and go into our next section, which is themes and schemes. What were you noticing this episode? Yeah, I don't know if this is a reach, but I saw like a mirror between one of the aspects of a heist, which is really important, which is getting the gang together, getting the crew together, recruiting who you need for the heist. Mm-hmm. And what we see in this episode, which is the first time that the whole cast is together again. And or at all, because now Julia that's true. is there. Yeah. And yeah. And so we get this kind of reunion, you know, it's, it's getting the band back together, which is another, you know, kind of trope of that to do one last job. Right. (laughs) Uh, But this is them. Yeah. Coming together to do this job. And we see, I think, some really interesting and compelling reunions occur. You you mentioned the one between Margot and Julia earlier, which was kind of like Mm -hmm. mostly funny, but also like, yeah, there's still tension there within this group that like has not just gone away and i think it works with being a heist because the reasons they're in this position is because of their their need for money and Mm -hmm. they are desperate and desperation can make you do things that you would prefer not to do but might be your best option or what you see as your best option and in this case working with someone that you hate could be seen as your best option mm-hmm. if you're if you're Margot. But we also get some other reunions. We obviously get Penny and Katie's sultry look and then make out session <laughs> in the know. middle of the library. In the recap, you were like, 
And Katie recruits Penny. I'm like, is that what we're calling it? <laughs> but yeah, they, they have, you know, a reunion that's not about, we, we don't get the time spent of them actually dealing with what either of them did. We get a little bit of Katie saying she'd feel bad pressuring Penny to help because of their past. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they're both just kind of happy to, to see each other again. Yeah. And then we get what I find actually to be one of the most compelling scenes in the episode in Alice's room with Julia and Quentin mm-hmm. and Alice Niffin, but only Quentin can see her. Yeah. And this kind of reunion where Quentin finds out some of what Julia's going through and he comes in to say that he wants to help. And he's also still dealing with the fact that Alice is constantly in his head and there's a lot of mixed emotions. And then he's going into Alice's room. You know, there's just kind of so much going on in that scene and these interesting dynamics at play, including the dynamic between Julia and Quentin, who we've seen have some intense ups and downs in in the show. Yeah, I mean, Quentin is so disconnected from the reunion because Alice is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it almost makes it not a reunion in a way because they're barely able to talk. Totally, yeah. And Quentin is kind of giving platitudes. You know, he says, like, clearly right now he wants to help. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, saying like, I don't want to break the promise where I said I'd help you. I'm like, you already did, dude. And he also, like, wasn't seeking her out, like you were talking about last episode. Exactly, you know? like, that's when he already broke it. Yeah. Like, it's been probably weeks now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, that you're absolutely right in saying that Quentin is disconnected from these kinds of reunions. Although I did find it charming to see Julia smiling at Quentin, struggling to take off the beekeeper suit. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was just kind of a glimpse of them when they are, like, close and supporting one another and and loving one another. Yeah, just that kind of small glimpse of seeing that, I think, was a really nice moment that, you know, was not necessary in this episode where so much is going on, but just kind of a a little kind of glimpse of that was, was nice. So, yeah, I find it really compelling to see how this episode, which absolutely could go down as one of the best episodes of the series. <laughs> That's a fun episode. Because there's a heist in it. Exactly. <laughs> um, but that they don't just have a heist to have the fun of having a heist, but they also do some interesting elements of like, okay, well, if we're going to have a heist, what do heists often entail? And how is that going to impact our characters and their relationships? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One other just little kind of narrative beat is... I forgot how quickly the Haxton Paxton dies. Yeah. Which I find actually kind of a missed opportunity mm-hmm. where they could have done much more with that character and having it die so quickly makes it kind of lose the weight of the decision for Julia and Katie to take it and try to maybe give it a life outside of just being a tool for other people. Mm-hmm. And sure, it chooses to protect Julia and dies in so doing, but that essentially makes it a narrative tool rather than a, a character. character. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, I just thought that, that was, that was a little frustrating to see. Um, but what did you want to talk about for themes and schemes? 
Yeah, so one thing I was thinking about is kind of like the scheme of the planning that actually goes into the things that they do. The literal scheming. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because we see when things don't go great during the heist, they are just messing up all over the place. There was four rewinds and at least one, if not all of them die every mm-hmm. time. This time, thankfully, with Elliot being the golem, there are other possibilities, but they would never have gone out of that situation. It's like, of course you always were killed by the beast. Look at how <laughs> this is just one battle magician that you just are in chaos. I mean, sure, you don't have hardly any time to like think of something new, but... I kind of like that because I think that's how people would be. It's not like you can just suddenly know what to do in these really heightened, stressful situations that are life and death. And so, yeah, there are probability spells. They're mapping things out even for this, all of the planning that went into the heist. You know, like, it's it's very necessary for them not to just perish every episode (laughs) but it is also like yeah we see in one of those resets penny is the first one running out to try to tackle her (laughs) it's like the one who doesn't have magic right now (laughs) (laughs) it's it's the opposite side of what we were talking about in the first episode of how he very quickly destroyed the mirror the beast went through (laughs) where he's just able to kind of competently use all tools, not just magic, but sometimes it's not as competent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we did have decreasing amount of oxygen going to his brain, so at least... And I think it was the third attempt, so, like, he'd already saw everyone else doing nothing fail (laughs) twice. (laughs) And also, that's the thing. Penny, as soon as he gets out of that room, he could probably just travel Mm, out. Yeah. But he's not going to do that. And I feel like Penny's first instinct in any situation is to, like, sacrifice himself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mike killed or would have could have killed mm. him with the knife because he protected Quentin. Like, you know, like, Quentin. Why? I know. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, why are you always throwing your body at things? <laughs> Especially when your body takes so much damage, Penny. <laughs> Maybe you should be cowering behind instead of the Gollumelian. <laughs> Sorry, Penny hasn't thrown his body at you. Uh, We're all sorry about whoever you are in the world. You're probably sorry about that. But yeah, we we haven't had the pop-up. Let's talk about how great Penny looks this Mm. season yet. But it's a standing thing. But now I'm reminded. Yeah. I've got one on pre-order. It'll ship to me soon. Oh, God. (laughs) Anyways, Uh, that's the thing. He can pull off things. There's certain people in the world who can just pull off things that, like, no one else can. He is one of those people. Taika Waititi is another. Mm. If you've seen him in Our Flag Means Death, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, Bruno Mars is another one. Mm. I'm just like, that would look horrible horrible on anyone else but for some reason they look great but the other theme that i was kind of playing with was the idea of the mudong 
sending the the one that sent those spoon blood goblin things after Julia. I think she said it was her sister, right? They were sisters. I think so. Maybe. Yeah, if they're sisters. (laughs) Her sister said that she thought, well, you have to kill this thing. And so if Julia has to die with it, then so be it, because it could hurt so many more people Mm -hmm. otherwise. So just this kind of idea of, you know, justified violence. Yeah. And an idea even that that we will be you know we're starting to but we will continue to see quentin trying to grapple with does he let alice out mm-hmm. because she could do a lot of damage to other people or does he box her oh yeah that is a good parallel yeah I, and i think it also you know their decision to kill martin and you know mm-hmm. these these different decisions of well, we'll maybe do something that we would say is wrong in a way, but we're justifying it because it'll prevent further wrong from happening. Um, so, yeah, something that I want to see how, how that continues to play out. Yeah, that is really interesting. But why don't we move into our last main section, which is from another point of view. I want to talk about Niffin Alice's point of view. Yeah, that's a good one. Because we really get a lot from her for the first time. She is a being who we see some similarities to Alice beforehand, but is in many ways a whole new character, and is also in many ways a type of being that we haven't spent much time with in the past. Mm -hmm. And so we're not only learning about who this character is, but also, you know, what is a Niffin? And, you know, what is it beyond just something that is extremely powerful and also willing to kill, including those who the person loved when they were human? Mm -hmm. Scary things, certainly. But, you know, at one point she mentions that she doesn't want to hurt anyone. She's not bloodthirsty. What you're like, is that is true that, exactly. or is you that know, a we, manipulative lie? We don't know how much of that that is, you know. But yeah, I just, I find her conversations with Quentin to be really illuminating and, and raise a lot of those kinds of interesting questions. You know, we we start the episode with her being offensive and abrasive, calling Quentin a miserable sad sack uh, and uh, using... Sexist pejoratives. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Against him and, you know, all all sorts of other kinds of things. And she challenges him on basically everything, you know, everything that he tries to say. She is just saying that he he doesn't get it and that he's wrong. Uh, You know, when he says that he's trying to help her, she says, what, you think I want to be saved? And you think you know me so well because of what happened when I was a human and... For one, I'm not that human anymore. And for two, you didn't know me that well, or at least treat me like you knew me that well or cared when I was alive. Yeah. Uh, She's like, our relationship was a dumpster fire. Exactly. <laughs> and as we've clearly talked about a lot on the show, this is something that's true about Quentin. Quentin did mm-hmm. romanticize Alice in his mind and had an idea of her and struggled when she didn't fit that idea. And now he's literally being haunted by a mirror version of her. 
yeah, I, I find her willingness to challenge Quentin in all of these ways really refreshing. Yeah. But I also think that she's able to do so so well because she does also know Quentin. <laughs> you know, what other sim- similarities she might have with Alice when she was a human. She maintains those memories and that knowledge and that's that ability to manipulate Quentin and to upset Quentin, infuriate him, and ultimately to take advantage of when he knows someone's in trouble and she can make that deal to get access to being in control of his body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's an interesting goal for her that... At first, she just wants to be let out, and she thinks that by messing with him and pestering him, she'll get his attention, at least, to to try to eventually convince him of that. But when he made it clear that he was either going to keep her there or put her in a box, she started to change her tactics. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if she thought, well... A bank high sounds dangerous. Maybe this will put me in a situation where either he'll be killed so I'll be able to go free anyway, or he'll be in a situation where I can bargain for time. Exactly. Or was she just like, haha, this sounds amusing. I want to watch it happen. <laughs> let's let's do this. Yeah, because that's the last thing I want to talk about is, is how she says that she's bored. Mm-hmm. And... She's stuck. And how after she transformed into an Iffin, she had a minute or two of being free as an Iffin and being able to access that greater magic that felt right to her in many ways. Now she's unable to use it and she's unable to explore it in ways that are completely in her own control because she's just stuck in Quentin's mind. And yeah, I can understand that being boring and frustrating and difficult for anyone, especially someone who seems to, like, in when it comes to magical intelligence, be on another plane than she was when she was a human, when she was already a stronger magician than most. So yeah, I can, I can definitely understand that. And I just, I find her, yeah, really compelling in the way that, in, just in the dynamic between her and Quentin and... I am excited to to kind of keep track of that uh, and see and see because I don't remember much of what she does when she gets those thirty minutes and mm-hmm. uh, what that might mean. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Olivia Taylor Dudley does just a really great job with Nif and Alice. Uh, she's very amazing to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I I get it. I. I can just be very bored if there aren't any new interesting ideas to think about. So I I can understand that she would just be like, of all people to be trapped in, Quentin would be (laughs) the one who likes to reread his favorite book over and over again, you know. Uh, At least if it was... Margo, she'd be like, war, you know, let's destroy more things, but yeah, Quentin is is probably last choice. Mm -hmm. What about you? What perspective did you have? So I was thinking a lot about Julia this episode Mm. because she's put in so many just uncomfortable, unfair situations. Mm -hmm. She has to tell 
this professor that she doesn't know and this dean of a school that she doesn't know. She's only ever talked to Dean Fogg like once that one time that Quentin was stuck in the dream nightmare spell and she doesn't just have to talk to these people she doesn't know but to explain that she was raped by a god and now needs to get an abortion but can't. Like this is not something that anyone should have to talk about with anyone that they don't want to talk to about it. And she doesn't have any other options. And she's then thankfully allowed to stay at break bills. And, and it's the first time that this loop number 40, Julia has been on campus and not had to sneak in to break bills. Mm using somebody else's key or with Marina and even though she's allowed entrance here now she still knows that even though she'd been there in past loops like this is not her home she's still an outsider here this school still kicked her out Mm -hmm. and I'm sure she has very mixed feelings and a lot of anger and unresolved sadness surrounding break bills uh, and what it put her through as people were just like changing this thing here and you know playing god in a way uh playing with their lives then in the midst of that she has to stay in the only empty room which is the room of alice who is not somebody that she knows Mm -hmm. or met but whose death the whole group there blames her for, even though it is not Julia's fault. If a lot of people hadn't made a lot of different decisions, Alice wouldn't have been put in that circumstance. But in the end, Alice still chose, you know, she still chose to do what she chose to do. And we shouldn't take that empowered decision away from Alice either. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you killed her. She didn't kill her. Yet she, yeah, she's surrounded by people who she knows are angry at her, who look down at her for being a hedge witch, and all of that is happening at the time when she's dealing with all of the horrible things, including still the emotional and physical trauma of what Reynard did to her, right? Mm. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about the situation she's in when Quentin approaches her, And as we were talking about, like, he's not even really in the conversation. Like, it's not a good conversation. It can't be when this other person's yelling at the same time and you can't concentrate on it. Yet, for him to come in and say, you know, my best friend in the world doesn't trust me and doesn't listen to me. And I know. know, She didn't trust you for good reason. Because you said, no, the raping, murdering god that's just running around and killing people in a community that you belong to is not as important as this other monster that we're trying to fight. Yeah. Even though you need him to help, we're going to do anything that we can to get him back and kill him. Whether you've gotten this god or not. 
he said like yeah i'll help you after we've gotten martin but that was clearly not true because after they got martin he just went to have that ridiculous job make other bad decisions and then spend the whole other episode doing more stuff regard to alice so it's just like and then him being like, I don't intend to break that promise I made to you. And it's like, it's been weeks, dude, and he hasn't checked up. Why would she go to him? Why would she tell him any of this? Like, when she sees him there, she just goes up to her room. Yeah. She doesn't want to talk to him about this. And I would be way more angry than she, she is. That you're saying that I'm your best friend in the world and you promised that you would help me. And you haven't. Uh, this other person that I haven't known my entire life is helping me, who also saw all of her friends get murdered in mm-hmm. front of her and is dealing with a drug addiction. And, you know, Quentin has just not been there. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about her being so uncomfortable in that space and not really having much to say to him. I don't know if how much she put pieces these things together because I don't know how much he's expressed things to her that would indicate his kind of savior complex and but not just savior complex but especially for a damsel in distress yeah. sort of thing because he didn't care about checking up on her or anything like that since Martin was killed and now he Suddenly, once there is a little quest, a mini quest, a bank heist quest to do, now he's on board to help. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it's just like being a nice supportive person to see if you need some meals or to just watch movies, you know, like anything that a person could maybe need or want in the space uh, or, hey, how did that thing go where you were trying to kill this raping, murdering mm-hmm. god? You know? But no, it's only when, oh, well, we have to save Julia now, like, yep. that he's on board. And I think that he does have some genuine care for Julia, and of I course. think that he does care, but he just, he does not follow through. He doesn't put his actions where his mouth is, except if it works out for him and what he wants to do. Yeah. So yeah, I was just thinking about like how it must be so frustrating to hear those sorts of words come out of this person who's supposed to be your best friend when they haven't been being a friend to you yeah. at all since they got into break bills, really. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what other people think of her still affects her. Because she's like, so I'm just supposed to wait here because I can't go on this heist. Well, all of these other people who blame me for Alice's death risk their life, you know? It just feels so frustrating and so out of her control. But even when she's doing that, she's still putting together a backup plan that Mm -hmm. ultimately they need. Um, And when it comes down to it, she puts her life at risk and saves them all. Yeah. Because without that reboot... They all would have been dead. They all died the first time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, no, she does not need saving. <laughs> she will save all of you because she's actually incredibly magically gifted. And it's like, yeah, this could take weeks to figure out. And she does so in a matter of an hour mm-hmm. or however long it was. So that was like the kind of 
nice spot for me because <laughs> the rest of the episode is just a continuation of what she was saying a few episodes ago. It's just like, why does it keep just getting worse and worse? Yeah. Because finally you find someone who can abort this evil demigod baby and then they need a million dollars in gold. And then there's another problem. And now these invisible goblins are trying to kill me. And now everyone is dying, you know? Yeah. Like, it's just everything keeps happening. And even at the end of the episode where Katie says there was a complication, like, again, everything just gets worse. Yet, for me, it was like this nice little bright spot of when she is just fiddling around with the little time magic machine and gets to just enjoy her nerdy, brainy, like completely indulge that side like she hasn't gotten to do since they were meeting with the freight traders and they were all alive yeah. because since then it has just been about trying to stay alive trying to cope cope trying to murder a god murder a god and clean up the dead bodies in the meantime yeah. so yeah, it was. I was happy for her that she at least got a time where nobody else was around and she just got to tinker with her magic toys. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, like I've said before, you know, I, I like Julia so much better on this watch through when we're really seeing all of that which is happening and how she perseveres and sometimes doesn't in the face of, of all that, that she's having to deal with. While, yeah, Quentin is floofing around is he floofing around floofing is that around. what you mean faffing around yeah that one <laughs> anyways why don't we go back to the title of the episode and discuss whether you like it or not what do you think of plan b it's okay i don't think that it necessarily screams heist to me because things go wrong with their plan A's all the time. <laughs> so the fact that it's uh, plan B, like, I don't know if that would automatically bring that up for me. But, you know, it, it it's not awful. Um, well, it's the combo of them having to resort to plan B and... It being about abortion? Yeah, I would assume. Well, then I dislike it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that's not what plan B is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that's my assumption. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Uh, if yeah. it had happened right <laughs> yeah, exactly. a couple days after, but yeah. Okay, then, yeah, I give it a thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of what, what would have been better, but... I've always wanted to rob a bank. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. It shouldn't be this hard to get a I mean, Evil demigod abortion? Yes. Yeah. That should really have been it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It really mm. shouldn't be this hard. No, no. Okay, well, that will wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we're going to be watching episode eight, which is called Word as Bond, where Penny becomes what none of us ever expected him to be, a librarian. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can help support the podcast. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.